Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to consume our attention with increasing cases around the world. In the United States, a sharp increase of cases in multiple states has led to a large number of ICU admissions. In previous episodes of the podcast, we've had multiple discussions on the respiratory failure caused by COVID-19. Today, we will go back to basics and review best available evidence for the management of COVID-induced ARDS. Our guest is Dr. Eddie Fan. Dr. Fan is an associate professor in the Inter- Interdepartmental Division of Critical Care Medicine and the Institute of Health Policy, Management and Evaluation of the University of Toronto, and a staff intensivist at the University Health Network, Mount Sinai Hospital. He is currently the medical director of the Extracorporeal Life Support Program at the Toronto General Hospital, and the director of critical care research at the University Health Network, Mount Sinai Hospital. Dr. Fan's research has focused on advanced life support for acute respiratory failure and patient outcomes from critical illness. These include investigations on the epidemiology and use of mechanical ventilation and extracorporeal life support in patients with ARDS, as well as on the development of ICU-acquired weakness, early rehabilitation in ICU patients, and long-term outcomes in survivors of critical illness. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Fan today and very honored. Eddie, welcome to Critical Matters. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I know that you have a passion for ARDS and have been not only part of multiple research trials, but also, I mean, um, lead author in many viewpoints and in many official statements regarding ARDS. And it seems that for the last six months, we have probably never seen as many ARDS patients in our ICUs. Yes, I think it's uh, the global pandemic has taken hold and uh, unfortunately, Many of these patients have become critically ill and developed uh, COVID-associated ARDS and seeing them in our intensive care units with uh, ARDS, I think this is unfortunately a pattern that's uh, a bit replicated itself in many jurisdictions around the world. And I think that we were uh, talking uh, prior to starting recording, Eddie, on some of the unique aspects of this pandemic, not only from a medical perspective in terms of the number of patients that we're seeing. I have never, I cannot recall in my lifetime having whole units of patients with the same diagnosis and seeing one after another being treated with similar therapies. That is something new. But also we were commenting on the the angst and that this has caused on obviously on providers, the stress it has caused on hospital systems, but also a very interesting phenomenon related to the dissemination of information or what we call an infodemic and where people seem to be looking for absolute answers, one size fits all, and it's a pendulum that swings from one attitude to another. And a lot of this propagated through um, social media, unfortunately, and not through re- right, the right channels. And I think that maybe we could start by just sharing with us what was the motivation for the recent uh, viewpoint you published in Lancet, which I think was what triggered, I mean, us having this conversation. Yeah, so th- thanks for that, Sergio. In fact, I like the term infodemic. I haven't heard that before, but I'll definitely be using that in the future. But I think that's one of the unique aspects of this uh, pandemic. One is obviously the global reach that uh, unfortunately the pandemic has had in the number of cases that you mentioned. And with that, all the unknowns as this uh, pandemic uh, 
started uh, in Wuhan and moved its way across the world. Um, and in this age of uh, social media, open access, uh, free medical education, which obviously has many, many pros, some of the cons were, uh, as you described, is that, you know, very quickly you could look to social media, um, you could look online, and now even traditional media outlets and even, uh, you know, high-impact medical journals were very quickly publishing reports um, of various uh, quality, various uh, uh, methodologic rigor, um, offering, uh, you know, anything from a, an anecdote to small case series to observational studies, uncontrolled studies, providing opinions on the best management um, of this uh, pandemic as it accelerated. And I think the challenge for clinicians who are already in many cases overwhelmed uh, by the clinical care uh, of these patients in their health systems, as you described, now are being inundated uh, by sometimes conflicting reports of the identification, diagnosis, management, and prognosis of these patients, uh, making it even more difficult in some circumstances to care for these patients. So in the usual situation where you think that uh, rapid dissemination of information would be helpful in such a situation, I think that my colleagues and I felt that in many instances, um, these often unsubstantiated, um, again, methodologically maybe uh, not as rigorous uh, information was driving sometimes bad decision-making uh, and management of these patients where what we need is careful um, thought and the ability to learn um, from this pandemic. I think Derek Angus has written a nice editorial about the importance of learning while doing. Certainly we need to treat these patients as they become ill, but we need to take a, a focused approach and a collaborative approach uh, to the management of these patients. And in terms of your question about our viewpoint, I think Dan Brody, uh, my friend and colleague from New York Presbyterian Hospital, as the pandemic was uh, hitting New York, was finding that a lot of uh, non-specialists or so non-intensivists were treating COVID patients who were surging all over his hospital. And again, uh, in many instances, turning to these non-traditional sources of medical information to help guide management. And the two of us wanted to maybe take the opportunity to perhaps collate some of the ideas and some of the challenges that have been going on um, during COVID in this viewpoint to sort of, as you mentioned at the beginning, bring things back to basics and maybe start um, to highlight some fundamental uh, starting points for management and obviously individualizing care from there. Excellent. And I think that that's what we're going to try to do in this conversation. And and I think it's also important to, to remember that um, there seems to be some aspects, Eddie, that people are assuming about COVID. Like number one is that everything that we see is highly unique to COVID. Whereas, I mean, I think we've never seen this number of patients at the same time, but a lot of things that are we're seeing with COVID, we've seen with other infections. And at the end of the day, it's not necessarily a unique, 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 different disease, but it's just, I mean, different because we don't have maybe certain treatments, but it behaves, like you said, once it is ARDS or once they have certain things, very similarly to large populations of patients with ARDS from other causes as well. Yeah, agreed. I, I think this is, uh, you know, um, when we think about other viral pneumonias that lead to um, lung injury and then uh, the clinical syndrome of ARDS, uh, influenza every year uh, can present also with this heterogeneous uh, picture. In Toronto, we had over 10 years ago the uh, uh, an experience with SARS, so the original coronavirus uh, infection that led to severe respiratory failure in, in, in some patients and unfortunately some of our medical colleagues who treated these patients and also led to respiratory failure that was uh, 
presented as uh, ARDS and then uh, and then fortunate complications like multi-organ failure. So I agree with you. I think uh, there are obviously, we're starting to uncover some unique aspects of COVID, but certainly there is a component of the lung injury and respiratory failure that COVID induces that is very much uh, like ARDS. So I would like to start by talking about phenotypes. And I think that uh, maybe we can start, Eddie, with just reminding the audience about the presence of phenotypes in ARDS, which is not anything new before we talk about COVID. Yeah, I think this is one of the points that we wanted to highlight in the viewpoint. And I know that many uh, people have highlighted uh, both in uh, subsequent uh, commentaries as well as in social media is that heterogeneity in ARDS has uh, been present since its original definition in 1967. In fact, the group of patients that Ashbaugh and Petty published about in The Lancet um, were very uh, different and have very different clinical risk factors, presentations, uh, and this sort of thing. So heterogeneity in the syndrome uh, has been present since the beginning. And again, the fact that it is a syndrome and not a disease uh, suggests there's going to be a degree of heterogeneity that you won't see in something like myocardial infarction, which is a disease and not a syndrome. Um, and so I think uh, that's one thing to recognize. So we're not surprised that COVID um, as a, a risk factor for the development of lung injury and ARDS will lead to a heterogeneous presentation uh, when it occurs and causes people to be critically ill. Um, so I think uh, that's an important thing to recognize that heterogeneity in ARDS is not a new phenomenon. And I think that one of the things that, that for me has always been fascinating in, in ARDS, specifically when we talk about phenotypes, is that in the last several years, after many, many ARDS net trials have been completed, reanalysis of these uh, trials looking at latent phase analysis of different phenotypes seems to suggest, which obviously needs to be studied further, that when you take big averages of patients, maybe certain things don't seem to work very well, but when you can classify based on certain characteristics, they might have a better application. And I think that uh, even though that's something that still needs to be studied, I think it's an interesting concept for the future. Could you comment on that, Eddie? Yeah, 100%. And again, I think that's, um, and maybe here not to dig too deep into the semantics of phenotypes, but I mean, I, I completely agree. It's just the heterogeneity of treatment effect or the heterogeneity in clinical trials, especially when they're large and enroll heterogeneous populations as the definition uh, allows. And a very good example of that is work that uh, Professor Gannoni has been seminal in is the development of prone positioning for severe ARDS. You might recall that there've been quite a few randomized control trials of prone positioning in patients with um, ARDS or even back using the older definition, lung injury, acute lung injury and ARDS. And these studies were refined over time to, that we understood that exactly as you said, Sergio, as we reanalyzed these initial studies and enrolled big populations of patients who had PF ratios less than 300, sort of all comers with lung injury or now what we call ARDS. And we discovered that actually the subgroup that seemed to consistently benefit in these trials was the sickest or the most hypoxemic subgroup and those that underwent proning for a longer duration of time. And so these trials morphed over time, 20 years to focus more and more narrowly on the sickest patients and on longer duration in proning that culminated in the Proceva study that showed the dramatic benefit of prone positioning in the group of patients with more severe hypoxemia and with longer duration of prone positioning. Excellent. And since you mentioned Dr. Gattinoni, I think that we can maybe move on into phenotypes in COVID. Uh, he obviously early on uh, shared some thoughts on possible 
variations and in, in, in phenotypes and clinical presentation. And I think that uh, the idea, I think, is very interesting. It's generating a lot of discussion, some controversy, and maybe perhaps, unfortunately, some people jumping to conclusions uh, too quickly in terms of what we should or should not do. Could you just share with us a little bit about the, the concept of phenotypes within COVID? Yeah, I think, again, I think uh, the idea here, and of course, uh, with all uh, respect to Professor Gattinoni, who has taught us so much about ARDS, amongst many other things in, in critical uh, care, is, is that there could very well be these important phenotypes or endotypes or subphenotypes, again, not trying to dig too deep into the uh, nomenclature, in uh, COVID-associated ARDS, what he's now uh, published a number of times on, the L and H uh, phenotypes, which seem to be, again, descriptions of relatively distinct either phases of the um, of the lung injury evolution or clinical presentation, whether they're true phenotypes or not, I think that's the part where, again, perhaps a more methodologic lens could be placed on it. Um, one of my colleagues, Carolyn Calfee from the University of um, California at San Francisco has done elegant work in trying to, uh, with colleagues around the world, uh, to identify some of these phenotypes in ARDS, uh, which are through uh, methods like latent class analysis, uh, a, a rigorous method of identifying true phenotypes, and most importantly, identifying phenotypes that matter in the sense that if you can identify some differences, that you would treat them differently. And when you treat them differently, um, that leads to different outcomes. Like that's the importance of identifying phenotypes. So the fact that some patients are different than others in ARDS, I mean, this is maybe interesting, but if in the end you treat them all the same and the outcomes are all the same, then identifying those differences may not be so important. So phenotypic variation is very important if it leads to differential treatment um, plans, which lead to different treatment results. So that would be the first thing that I would say. So the identification by Professor Gattinoni of these LNH phenotypes, they seem interesting. Again, I think they need to be uh, corroborated using more rigorous uh, methods in larger data sets. And then most importantly, showing that the management or treatment of LNH phenotypes, if they're true phenotypes, um, uh, would lead to different uh, outcomes. That would be the other uh, important thing. Yeah, and, and I think an important uh, lesson for myself, at least, was early on, I think, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, I think that people were looking for a kind of like bullets in terms of, okay, everybody should be on high PEEP, everybody should be on low PEEP, everybody should be intubated early, everybody should be uh, intubated late. I mean, and I think that that's what we need to recognize that whether we have phenotypes or not, individual patients need to be treated within the context of their individual situation with the best available evidence. And I think that that is maybe a, a more important message for, for the bedside clinicians, which obviously when you get overwhelmed with patients becomes more and more difficult. And it's something that we have to recognize as unique to this, to this pandemic. But why, why don't we go into just, I mean, talking a little bit about management and start maybe with uh, what uh, you have seen, what you have experienced, and kind of your thoughts on just uh, initially treating patients who present to the hospital with hypoxemia, with COVID. Yeah, so I think, you know, I, I think actually that one of the main drivers, at least at my hospital, and I think it might be, again, uh, different in different jurisdictions, I think one of the main changes in the strategy on managing these patients have been driven by infection uh, control uh, limitations. So in my hospital, for instance, we started off uh, as COVID cases hit here in Toronto, uh, Canada, um, our infection control procedures were trying to discourage the use of high flow nasal cannula 
and non-invasive ventilation like BiPAP because of the unclear risk of aerosolization um, from, these, uh, from these modalities. And again, this is a situation where we've had, I would say at the moment, although it seems to be improving, um, at the start of the pandemic, inconsistent data about the true risk of, for healthcare workers in particular, of uh, managing these patients on high flow nasal cannula um, or non-invasive ventilation and the risk of its uh, aerosol generation and then subsequent infection of healthcare workers. Um, and again, so from our point of view, because we were concerned about, as I'm sure many jurisdictions, about the availability of uh, PPE to protect healthcare workers if these patients were to be managed under full airborne precautions, uh, the availability of negative pressure rooms to put them in, as well as perhaps uh, having HEPA filter in non-airborne rooms, negative pressure rooms, we elected to really sparingly use high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation in these patients. Again, not because we didn't think they might be efficacious in the right patients, but mostly because we were concerned about infection risk. Now, as the pandemic has continued and there now is increasing amounts of data, perhaps suggesting that high-flow nasal cannula is perhaps not as aerosolizing as we initially uh, believed, and perhaps similarly for non-invasive ventilation, we're now uh, cautiously trying to use these, but still under uh, full airborne precautions to protect our healthcare workers. And in terms of uh, extrapolating from ARDS, <clears throat> there's also, I mean, obviously recently published data on high-flow nasal cannula in ARDS. Uh, any thoughts, I mean, in terms of what we know from ARDS as just which might be more, more, more effective? Yeah, I, I, again, I think um, um, that's probably a good starting point. Again, we don't have an, at the moment, although that, again, is changing data specifically in COVID, as much data in specifically in COVID populations. But again, extrapolating from our existing knowledge that, again, in, in the right patient uh, who isn't profoundly hypoxemic, certainly uh, perhaps uh, maybe best used in those who have hypercapnia, which may not be the most profound presentation of some of these patients who have ARDS, but high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation certainly have their place. But again, I think uh, as institutional guidelines vary on the trigger point for intubation, certainly uh, traditional um, thresholds for intubation should still be employed in these patients. So obviously patients who are uh, having decreased level of consciousness, who are difficulty protecting their airway or managing secretions, uh, who develop more profound uh, hypoxemia that would require uh, mechanical ventilation. These are patients that should quickly move to uh, ventilatory, invasive ventilatory support as we normally would in non-COVID times, uh, but certainly that there are going to be patients who, uh, very good patients, who have milder forms of hypoxemia, who are very awake, perhaps some of these also have a component of hypercapnia, who could be well managed in the right monitored setting on high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation. Yeah, and I think that an important um, distinction to make or just to emphasize is that um, whether, whether we, you use it or not, the important thing that I, th I think has been said over and over again is that when you utilize either high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP, optimize your infection uh, uh, control precautions, but also have a very um, intense monitoring of these patients because if they're not responding or getting worse, probably delaying things is not in their benefit, whether they have COVID or not is something that I think we all believe that we should be very careful with these patients. And I think that's something, a message that sometimes I think gets lost. 100%. In fact, I feel that um, uh, non-invasive ventilation, uh, in fact, is probably uh, in many instances more difficult to implement well and properly than invasive mechanical ventilation. So I think one of the things exactly, Sergio, I couldn't agree more, is that these are not, especially in COVID times, a fire and forget 
situation. These patients need to be monitored carefully uh, for the possibility of uh, failure or non-response. And then in that situation, again, as we would in non-COVID times, those patients should not be uh, encounter long delays to uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation if, uh, if they're failing these uh, kinds of support modalities. Before we dive into uh, talking about timing for intubation, which obviously is a very difficult topic, but I think a very important one, I want to ask you specifically about two things uh, related to non-invasive ventilation in general. One is uh, a, a reports obviously started in New York, but I think a lot of people have been observing this. Patients who might be on high flow nasal cannula who can cooperate, you ask them to prone themselves for a certain period of the time and you might see improves in, in, in the pulse oximeter. Uh, obviously, we don't know if this, I mean, ultimately prevents people from being intubated, but it seems that, I mean, the risk obviously in those who can cooperate is low, but any comments on this uh, self-induced proning? Yeah, again, I think this is a promising, you know, uh, intervention that's relatively simple, uh, cheap, uh, and could be widely administered in, in many uh, health uh, systems around the world uh, if it's efficacious. And again, I hear, here's another good example of something that uh, has been observed uh, in many centers. And now we have a few case reports, two that were published in JAMA and one that was published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine by an Italian group. Uh, suggesting that there could be some short-term benefits, at least in the uh, report published in uh, in one of the reports published in JAMA, there seems to be a short-term improvement in oxygenation, maybe not as profound in the other two uh, studies, uh, and some, again, conflicting reports about its ability to either delay or mitigate the need for intubation uh, in these patients. It seemed reasonably tolerated uh, for short periods of time in these awake, non-intubated patients. So again, this is something now that seems to, um, there's some data suggesting it could be done. There's some data suggesting it has physiologic uh, benefits and whether it has patient important uh, outcome changes needs to be uh, discerned. And uh, fortunately, there are at least a few now uh, randomized control trials that are underway. And just, just to disclose, I'm on the steering committee of a Canadian trial that's looking at this being led by Walid Al-Hazani and McMaster University, um, as well as a number of other clinical trials around the world. So hopefully we'll have some answers from um, from randomized control trials on this specific question in this specific population in the near future. The second question I have, Eddie, is related to, I, I've seen more and more people um, sharing, uh, these are not official uh, reports in, uh, in the literature, but sharing that they are utilizing salvage therapies such as inhaled nitric oxide <clears throat> in patients who are not intubated with the idea of rescuing them, in quotes, from uh, or preventing intubation. Uh, any comments on this? Obviously, my interpretation that there's no data for this, but I just wanted to hear. I mean, what what your thoughts were? Yeah, I think I think it's the same um, idea here. I think uh, without data, without a lot of uh, hard data suggesting that you know having inhaled vasodilators in these patients on high flow nasal cannula or uh, non invasive ventilation. Um, in terms of uh, outcomes uh, and maybe just delaying uh, intubation in these patients, I would use the same criteria as we always have even in non-COVID patients in that if patients are failing really conventional uh, amounts of support with high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation, that those patients would quickly move to being, uh, again, con consistent with their wishes and their goals of care to be intubated and placed on mechanical ventilation. I might try some of these strategies 
uh, in those more elderly patients who, for instance, uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation is not within their goals of care, i.e. they don't want to go to the intensive care unit or they don't want to be intubated and ventilated. I might try some of these rescue strategies in those patients on a case-by-case basis, but I think in patients where the plan of care would be to move to intubation if they were otherwise failing high flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation, I wouldn't try adding any you know, inhaled vasodilators or that sort of thing and move quickly to uh, intubating them and uh, ventilating them basically. So I think that in, in order to kind of close, I mean, this this uh, this segment, uh, it's fair to say that we have kind of moved from being very resistant because of infectious uh, spreading uh, concerns with the use of non-invasive to applying more uh, non-invasive and understanding that there are some patients that with the proper monitoring uh, could be treated with non-invasive, especially some of the younger patients. It might not need to be intubated, which might be a positive thing, but I think that the the take-home message should be that we should have all the precautions uh, possible, but also we should be very vigilant of these patients because if they're not improving or getting worse, we should probably find a different route in terms of a, a therapeutic approach for these patients and not delay the proper treatment. Agreed. Couldn't agree more. So let's let's dive into a difficult question, which is when should we intubate patients with COVID-19 ARDS? I think that... Uh, we have uh, never talked so much about when to intubate patients. I think that most clinicians have experienced the highest number of intubation days in their in their in their in, in their uh, shifts with COVID. But I think that also this seems to be a pendulum where people are looking for absolutes, and I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think early on, people said early intubation, and some people took that okay. If they require more than six liters, just go ahead and intubate them. Uh, now people say we can avoid intubation, intubation associated with bad outcomes, and people have taken that to the other extreme and using all sorts of uh, strategies to avoid putting somebody on a ventilator. And I imagine that at the end of the day, the way I interpret it, and I want to hear your thoughts, Eddie, is that people who need to be intubated should always be intubated early rather than late. The hard part is understanding who, who needs to be intubated, and that might be harder than it seems when you have so many patients with COVID. So what are your thoughts on intubation? Yeah, so I think I would separate it into two different considerations. So I think leaving aside the, what you spoke about last, Sergio, in terms of uh, in the setting of a massive surge on hospital resources um, where there are many patients and you might want to move to intubation earlier. I think those are system factors or organizational factors that might change your approach uh, to intubation. But outside of that, I think thinking about patient factors that would uh, sort of uh, considerations that lead you to make a decision about intubation. Um, again, I would say that we we in Toronto have been using the same strategy and the same considerations that we had used in non-pandemic times in patients with, uh, with respiratory failure or, or, or impending respiratory failure and use the same uh, criteria to assess them for the need uh, for intubation. Now, again, we were fortunate in Toronto, so I can't speak from firsthand experience of uh, that our hospital system was not overwhelmed with COVID patients, uh, you know, on our wards, uh, in our emergency departments, to the, to the point where we were managing hundreds of patients across our health system. So I can't speak from firsthand experience on that, but I think we tried to employ the same uh, strategies uh, in these patients, recognizing as as many uh, people do, clinicians do, that there are definitely risks of intubating patients of all the um, the procedure itself and prolonged mechanical ventilation, ventilator-associated pneumonia, 
ventilator induced lung injury, immobility, sedation, delirium, all the things that come with uh, being on a on life support in the ICU. And you, again, so knowing, understanding these risks, you have to understand the trade-offs that are present in intubating these patients um, if they're failing conventional therapy. So we use the same strategy again that we sort of touched upon before in the patients who are failing otherwise conventional oxygen therapy or have a decrease in their level of consciousness so they can't protect their airway, they can't manage their secretions, the trajectory is accelerating, suggesting they're gonna have frank respiratory failure uh, very quickly. Um, you know, there are technical reasons for why they can't have high flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation. Um, you know, in these patients, just as we would in any other patient who has community acquired pneumonia, aspiration, uh, post-operative uh, uh, respiratory failure, we would move to intubate them. So we didn't really think too much about it being early versus late. Uh, then we when, then we considered these patients the same as any other patient with respiratory failure who uh, was uh, a candidate for intubation of mechanical ventilation. Um, and then just to say again on the second point that I think, of course, this kind of a um, uh, management strategy could require modification in those settings, in those pandemic settings where the hospital is under massive surge, in which case, um, you know, you might consider shifting uh, intubation to earlier times just because of human resources management and the, and the, and the sheer number of patients. Uh, but again, I would say those are separate organizational issues or system issues compared to the you know considerations for the individual patient. And I think that perhaps a, a lesson that that people have 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 learned, which again is not novel to uh, uh, to COVID, but I think it's just I mean requires going back a little bit more in time, is the fact that hypoxemia per se, when people present, may not be the indication because you can treat hypoxemia with non-invasive, with supplemental oxygen at high levels. Um, and that really it's like some other factors related to, I know Gattinoni and, 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 and Dr. Marini have gone in the in the route of uh, patient-induced lung injury, but really it's more about more of a respiratory failure that goes beyond just hypoxemia. And unfortunately, I hear like terms like happy, happy hypoxemia being thrown around. If you are Severely hypoxemic, you shouldn't be happy, I guess. So that might be an indication. But it it reminds me, Eddie, to um, when I was in training with, uh, and we had a lot of HIV patients. Patients with who presented with PCP would be profoundly hypoxemic, but a lot of times with supplemental oxygen, they did okay, and uh, we didn't have to just intubate them because they presented to the to the ED and their first SATs were in the 80s. So a lot of times you supplemented them with high high oxygen and they, they were okay. But when they started developing other signs or refractory hypoxemia, obviously you need to, to move on and, and intubate some of these patients. Any thoughts on, on this as, a, as I think a unique feature of COVID that may not necessarily trigger an immediate intubation? No, I agree with you. And I think uh, the PCP example is a good one. And I think of an important mantra in, in critical care as it is in probably clinical medicine is that we treat the patient and not the numbers. So exactly as you sort of described is that if the patient otherwise comes in with low oxygen saturation, which can be managed judiciously uh, targeting modest oxygenation goals, the 88 to 93% say saturations, they're comfortable, their work of breathing isn't very high, they're awake, they're alert, they're interactive, they can manage their secretions and protect their airway, um, then these patients should be monitored and not rushed to intubation because the PaO2 happens to be lower than you think it should be, or the SATs are a bit lower than they should be. And I think this is something in general in critical care, we've moved more and more towards a reliance on normalizing 
we're treating uh, these physiologic parameters or numbers when what we really should do is to treat the patient. So I couldn't agree with you more that um, every patient is an individual. We should, obviously these factors are important in the consideration for decision-making around what kind of support they do or don't need. But at the end of the day, we need to treat the patient and not the numbers. Yeah, and I think that from my perspective, I mean, based on what you shared and what I've been able to, to, to learn and, and, and what I've seen in my practice, we should not forget that even in COVID patients, there are some indications like alteration in mental status, hemodynamic instability, that when present with respiratory failure should probably push us towards intubation quicker. Uh, further uh, than that, I think that, like you said, um, recognizing that when these patients are having a, hard, a, a difficult or increased work of breathing or they're going in the wrong direction, maybe the time to pull that trigger also comes and that we should not think of intubation as a negative thing. It's one of the tools that we have and the idea is to use the proper tools at the proper time. Exactly. It's the right tools for the right patient at the right time. Uh, so it's Absolutely. not, a, as you've mentioned many times, not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. So once they're intubated, obviously they're on mechanical ventilation. And here I've also seen big swings uh, in terms of how people reacted. Like uh, at the beginning, some people were cranking up the PEEP, doing this, doing that. Then all of a sudden people are not using almost no PEEP. And it seems to go from one extreme to the other. But why don't we, why don't we take this, uh, this segment to kind of refocus or go back to, to what we know about ARDS? I mean, we talked about possible phenotypes, but also in your viewpoint paper. And what we know is that um, a lot of the reported literature with COVID suggests that as a group, a lot of these intubated patients look very similar to other intubated patients with ARDS from other causes. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, you know, looking again, and the, the numbers are growing, but at the time of publication, we included a number of published cohorts uh, that provided mechanical ventilation parameters and uh, respiratory mechanics on patients. So a few from New York, some originally from China, and then some from the United States and one from uh, Europe uh, that showed on average uh, the respiratory system compliance in these patients when it was measured uh, was very similar to those in, in uh, pre that were previously enrolled in clinical trials or observational studies of ARDS. So these patients in the end, uh, on average, looked very similar to uh, patients in previous uh, ARDS uh, cohorts, and again, until we have, um, which is it, which is improving again, more uh, more data, more rigorous data specifically on COVID nineteen induced ARDS. I mean, our best strategy is to extrapolate all the data uh, and uh, and uh, management approaches that we have have gleaned over more than fifty years of research on ARDS. Because at the end, these patients and the number of autopsy series now. Um, also confirm that in the end, at least the respiratory pathology uh, looks a lot like ARDS. There definitely now is, of course, an emerging amount of data that, that shows that the virus also has a number of pleiotropic effects on other organ systems. In particular, I think highlighted has been the disruptions in coagulopathy. Maybe there's an associated endotheliopathy um, and an increased number of thrombotic events. So these are important maybe new feature of COVID, but at least it, when it affects the lungs at autopsy, it looks like diffuse alveolar damage uh, and, and ARDS. So I think our, our overriding mantra in thinking of the management of a ventilated patient is to treat them um, like we've treated or ventilate them as we've always ventilated ARDS patients and use that as the starting point. And I think it's also important to, 
and one of the things that I really enjoyed about the viewpoint, I mean, in terms of uh, its approach, was the balance, right, and the in the in the scientific uh, kind of openness to say that if I describe a hundred white swans, it doesn't prove that there's not a black swan somewhere, right? And I think that we 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 do recognize that there might be phenotypes depending on when they present, but on average, what we're seeing now in our hospitals. It looks similar with its variations to what we saw in other patients with ARDS. And I think it's good to remind people what we've learned so far in ARDS. And I think we could start, Eddie, with what's the only A1 recommendation from everything that we're talking about today, which is low tidal volumes. And that means that basically it's a strong recommendation based on one or more randomized trials. And uh, maybe we could start by just talking about tidal volume in patients who are intubated with COVID-19-induced ARDS. Yeah, so again, following uh, on the recommendations that we have in place for the ventilatory management of ARDS patients in general, uh, low tidal volume ventilation, as you mentioned, is really the, the uh, cornerstone of the ventilatory management of these patients. Um, and so again, the starting tidal volume in these patients should be six mils per kilo predicted body weight. Um, which can be either reduced um, if uh, plateau airway pressures remain high. So from the ARMA trial, we know that 30 is uh, at least a, a marker of, uh, of uh, high airway pressure. So if at six mils per kilo, the plateau pressure is still above 30, you can reduce tidal volume down to as low as four mils per kilo. And if the patient is having you know, asynchrony and, uh, and discomfort from six mils per kilo, per kilo tidal volumes and the plateau pressure is still low, then you can, can consider liberalizing tidal volume to as high as eight uh, mils per kilo. So again, the cornerstone of the ventilatory management then again uh, for AR, all ARDS patients being this use of the pressure volume limited lung protective ventilation. And can you mention a, a little bit, I mean, uh, what we know in non-ARDS patients in low tidal volumes and how they protect or, or don't protect the lung? Yeah, so increasingly, I think, you know, um, we're having more and more reports from other populations of non-ARDS patients uh, suggesting um, a, benefit, a potential benefit of using these kinds of low tidal volume strategies, even those uh, in patients who don't have established ARDS but might be at risk. So we now have a few randomized control trials and observational studies looking at patients, say, the intraoperative management, so even patients being ventilated for a short period of time following thoracic surgery or abdominal surgery, uh, employing these lower tidal volumes than traditional, um, and some of the postoperative management of these patients uh, using low tidal volumes seem to lead to a reduction in pulmonary complications and progression to ARDS when you use these protective strategies. So um, um, so again, I think increasingly overall in the field, it seems that not only is the use of lung protective ventilation a good idea in ARDS, but it might also be a very good idea in patients at risk or who don't have established ARDS. And I think maybe the most important consideration, again, from a health system point of view is that we know from the LungSafe study that very many patients are being under-recognized by clinicians for ARDS. And only two-thirds of patients are getting what we would consider lung protective ventilation in terms of tidal volume and plateau pressure um, in ICUs around the world. And if you sort of just use a strategy where any ventilated patient, at least the starting point, would be six mil per kilo tidal volumes, then you might mitigate uh, some of the challenges of under-recognition or those who might even be recognized who are not receiving low tidal volume ventilation 
uh, to get that therapy and then individualize based on the patient's characteristics from there. And I think that's important because like you said, I mean, it's a range, right? From four to, to eight, you start at six, but you can individualize and move one way or the other based on what you're seeing with the patient that you're treating at the bedside. The other Agreed. question I, I think, have, I think, go ahead. Yep, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No. The other question I had, Eddie, is uh, uh, could you comment how driving pressure uh, fits into this? Yeah, so uh, so driving pressure is a, uh, I think, a, a, an increasingly interesting and potentially important ventilatory parameter to consider. I think the challenge, of course, is that it, it's, again, it's very appealing from a physiologic point of view. So driving pressure representing the tidal volume that's scaled to respiratory system compliance so that the worse, the more um, stiff your lung is, so the worse the respiratory system compliance, the less you would want the tidal volume delivered to the to the baby lung, and therefore uh, that could be reflected by a lower driving pressure. Um, the challenge is, of course, at the present time, we only have an observational study, a very high-profile observational study from Marcelo Amato and colleagues published in the New England Journal that looked at a post-hoc analysis of randomized control trial data to establish that lower driving pressures were associated with uh, lower mortality in patients with ARDS, and there seemed at least uh, from the data that maybe there's a threshold around a driving pressure of 15, where mortality really started to uh, increase uh, steeply. Um, so now what we need is, is that, again, this is an interesting, much like the proning and awake non-intubated patients, is an interesting observation. It has a strong physiologic rationale, and now we need to test that in a randomized clinical trial. So fortunately, the Brazilians have moved from this observational study. They've published some phase two data showing the feasibility of a driving pressure limited strategy. And now we need some confirmatory clinical trials to show that um, a strategy focused mainly on reducing driving pressure is going to be uh, one, beneficial, and two, if it's any different or better than reducing tidal volume. One of the main ways of reducing driving pressure is to reduce tidal volume. So um, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm um, hopeful to see is, is that whether actually a strategy limiting driving pressure is, leads to really any different uh, ventilatory settings than a strategy that limits tidal volume like we use now. So I think it's interesting, but we need more data. And just to, uh, to share with the audience, I mean, by driving pressure, we're just talking about plateau pressure minus the PEEP. And uh, the thought is that you're adjusting it based on changing your tidal volume and having an impact on your plateau pressure, correct? Yes, yeah. Excellent. So um, any thoughts on hypercapnia? That is always obviously something that people struggle with. I mean, obviously, in, we come in the, in the old days, we talk about permissive hypercapnia, but this is something also that I think that people have proposed as a maybe a reason to liberalize a little bit in terms of the tidal volume. But any, any thoughts on how you would approach hypercapnia in these patients? Yeah, again, I think um, similarly, I think, uh, again, from the ARDS literature, I think uh, what we would do is uh, for these mechanically ventilated patients, again, uh, target modest physiologic goals. So um, targeting oxygen saturations of 88 to 93 percent, like in the ARMA trial and uh, targeting that pH. So which is related to the presence of uh, hypercapnia and respiratory acidosis of above 7.25, which, again, is a trade off. Uh, against um, increasing intensity of mechanical ventilation and the risk of more ventilator-induced lung injury, which we, we think is a main uh, a driver of uh, multi-organ failure and outcomes in patients who are ventilated with the RDS. So the trade-off here is to 
uh, tolerate modest intensity mechanical ventilation, which as a consequence uh, leads to some permissive hypercapnia. So as long as the pH uh, for our patients is about 7.25, um, uh, from the resulting respiratory acidosis, that's the kind of hypercapnia we would tolerate, and it's again very similar to the to the limits that were tolerated in the ARMA trial from uh, the ARDS uh, network. Um, uh, again, which could be individualized in patients where there might be other considerations uh, for managing hypercapnia more tightly. So, you know, patients who have intracranial hypertension, patients who are pregnant, uh, these sorts of things, special considerations. But otherwise, in our in the absence of contraindications, we would allow some permissive hypercapnia and target a pH above 7.25. Excellent. So let's move on to PEEP, which obviously is a little bit more difficult maybe than tidal volume because we don't have as much uh, literature. But I think that in general, it seems, uh, Eddie, that people have uh, moved from either high PEEP or low PEEP uh, just to kind of as a dichotomy with COVID. And the reality is at the end of the day, what we're trying to identify is what's the best PEEP for that patient. And obviously that sometimes can be difficult, but why don't you share with us what evidence suggests and what your approach is to using PEEP in these patients? Yeah, so I think, again, our approach is, uh, is, is no different than what we recommended in our um, ATS, ES, ICM, SCCM guideline for ARDS patients, is that um, as the patient becomes more hypoxemic, so as they progress from, say, mild to moderate to severe ARDS, we would try to apply higher levels of PEEP in patients who have more severe uh, lung injury, as the data suggests. Um, the challenge, of course, is as as you said, is twofold. One is what is higher PEEP, <laughs> and two, how and and how do you set it? Um, and these are challenges that, of course, in the field. And again, to quote Professor Gadnoni, who gave a lecture on this when I was a fellow in Brussels, said uh, at the time, after 40 years of uh, research, we still don't know how to set PEEP. I would say that's still as <laughs> relevant today as it was when I heard that message over 15 years ago. But um, I think as a starting point, again, we could use uh, strategies from large randomized control trials that have been published. So, for instance, the alveoli trial, which used the PEEP FO2 table, the express study, which tried to maximize PEEP um, to, uh, to achieve a maximum plateau pressure of about 28 centimeters of water, um, or um, uh, LALS, which also used a different uh, high PEEP FO2 table. So those might be a starting point. Uh, for setting PEEP. We're now getting data on other tools that might be available at the bedside, depending on uh, your center's comfort with them. So things like electrical impedance tomography might be a way to, to, um, to understand, uh, again, the trade-offs between uh, overinflation or overdistension and uh, underinflation uh, in some areas or atelectasis by changing PEEP using esophageal manometry. Um, one of my colleagues here in Toronto, Laurent Burchard, has recently published on this uh, rec recruitability index, which might be also a simple bedside maneuver to test response to higher or lower levels of PEEP. So there could be ways to try to gauge the individual patient response, but that's the key. I think using any of these tools as a starting point to set the PEEP and then trying to individualize PEEP to that patient's respiratory mechanics is the key. And some of those patients are going to tolerate higher PEEP and some of those patients are going to be less recruitable and not tolerate higher PEEP. And, and, and that uh, is the individualization of uh, the strategy in those patients. And in terms of uh, what we understand or what we, we, we believe uh, uh, responses, in general, could you comment on the concept of patients who have higher recruitability might uh, benefit or respond to higher PEEP versus patients who have lower recruitability uh, might be harmed and what are the potential harms of PEEP? 
Yeah, I think I think you know. Uh, so maybe two, you know, there are a few uh, potential negative effects to Pete. Uh, maybe to uh, to highlight are um, again uh, over distension. So the possibility of uh, over distension injury on the uh, on the lung where the peep is uh, being applied, higher peep is being applied. And second is uh, hemodynamic effects um, because again, as the peep increases and intrathoracic pressure increases, that might have uh, deleterious effects on intrathoracic structures like uh, the heart uh, and some of the major vessels limiting either venous return or cardiac output. Uh, so there could be hemodynamic consequences to higher PEEP. And here again is a very interesting heterogeneity, if you will, that Professor Gannoni described quite a few years ago in the New England Journal showing that, it again, typically patients who have, um, through CT scanning, who have less severe lung injury, um, very little collapsed lung, uh, on their CT scan, they have low recruitability because there's not a lot of collapsed lung to recruit in those patients. So if you apply high PEEP to those patients, all that happens is that the healthy lung units or relatively healthy lung units get overdistended, intrathoracic pressure increases, that squishes the heart and the great vessels, and you get hemodynamic compromise, overdistension, uh, which might lead to desaturation. So you get complications. Whereas in CT scans of severe ARDS patients where there's a lot of collapsed uh, lung tissue, that collapsed tissue has the potential to be recruited. So these might be the patients that respond to higher PEEP. And because recruitment then actually leads to a drop in pleural pressure, you don't get the hemodynamic compromise, you actually get increased uh, surface area of lung available for gas exchange and perhaps an improvement in both oxygenation and ventilation in those patients. So here is again, an example of heterogeneity that Professor Gattinoni published in the New England Journal, uh, showing that these both ARDS patients, but they respond differently to uh, PEEP. Excellent. So before we go into some solvage therapies, I wanted to ask you about uh, modes of ventilation. I think that there obviously has always been, I mean, a, a lot of enthusiasm amongst our critical care colleagues for different uh, non-traditional modes of ventilation. I know that your group has been instrumental in studying high-frequency oscillation ventilation, and that didn't pan out to probably work as well for ARDS. But also, uh, I, I see and read a lot about people proposing the use of APRV in these patients. Uh, I know that in the last uh, iteration of the consensus statements, you did not comment on APRV uh, specifically, but any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think at this point, again, in the absence of high quality data, it's hard to know what to do with alternative modes of ventilation. I think certainly, as you mentioned, uh, much to our uh, um, uh, surprise, the high-frequency oscillation, which is something that we was near and dear to our hearts in Toronto, uh, didn't uh, seem to be beneficial. And certainly there was a signal towards harm in the oscillate study. So we've abandoned, largely abandoned, the routine use of uh, high-frequency oscillation in these uh, kinds of patients. Um, uh, in terms of APRV, I think this has been a challenging uh, situation. I think there's a lot of uh, um, uh, support for this uh, mode of ventilation uh, as being potentially beneficial. I think the challenge has been is that there's unfortunately not been a lot of high quality data and really no large scale randomized controlled trial comparing it to the standard of care uh, showing a benefit. And so I think, again, um, this is not to say, uh, as you mentioned before, that absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. This is uh, It's just that we need data. So it could actually be something very useful, but we just need to study it. And so, again, what I would I would hope that my colleagues who are strong proponents of APRV is that maybe to get together and collaborate on a trial to, uh, to demonstrate um, the potential benefit of that mode.
But in the setting of this pandemic, I would say, as I often say to many people, is that you should do what you know best. This is probably not the right time to engage in, um, you know, sort of a potpourri of uh, alternative modes and stick with what you know best, if that's volume control for controlled ventilation and then pressure support for assisted ventilation, then stick with those. And uh, until we have data that other modes do anything more or better than those, I would just stick with what you know. Yeah, and I think that um, my observation of the use of APRV, uh, obviously, uh, like you said, I mean, it's possible that it's better, we just don't know. It's possible that it hurts, we don't know again. But the two things that, that, that I have found, Eddie, that, that concern me are, one is that I think clinicians, when they go down the APRV route, are optimizing for, for oxygenation and are not really paying attention to the things that we know make a difference, which are lung protective ventilation in terms of understanding what the tidal volume really is and what are the pressures that we're really imposing or the stress and strain on, on that lung. And I think that is a little bit concerning to me. And the second thing which you mentioned is that uh, no matter how good you think you understand APRV, in many hospitals, uh, there's a lot of other people involved, like respiratory therapists or other clinicians that are cross-covering that might or might not be as comfortable. And maybe, like you said, when you have such a big number of patients, trying new things is not at the right time. Any comments on those? Yeah, I, I think I agree with both of those statements. I think this is part of the challenges is that um, is to remember that the vast majority of patients with the RDS don't die of refractory hypoxemia. And in fact, we have a lot of studies showing that oxygenation is not a good surrogate for mortality in the RDS. And uh, again, a good example is that in the ARMA study, the low tidal volume arm had actually worse oxygenation on day one uh, than the control group, but they ultimately were the group that had the 9% absolute risk reduction in mortality. So optimizing oxygenation may not, except in those very few patients who are actually dying of hypoxemia, be a very good surrogate for outcomes, but reducing ventilator-induced lung injury, as you said, and focusing on things like tidal volume, airway pressures, and that is important. And two, I think, again, agree, like when your resources are stretched thin, um, um, unless there's compelling evidence that we need to do X because we've just demonstrated that X is saving these patients' lives, I think trying to establish a new system of uh, interventions is, in, during a pandemic is maybe not the best uh, time to do that. Let's talk about prone positioning in intubated patients. I think that, like you mentioned earlier, this is an example of a therapy that had a physiological uh, underpinning uh, rationale that was tested and didn't really show great improvements till we kind of fine-tuned who are the right patients for this, which is a moderate to severe ARDS patients. But uh, clearly, I think that we have seen a widespread adoption of proning in many ICUs with COVID. And I have, for my own practice, seen a lot more prone patients on a regular basis than I would see maybe in non-COVID times. But could you talk a little bit about prone positioning and ARDS from COVID? Yeah, I think uh, similar to our discussion uh, about the other therapies, that this is uh, something that we now understand has a, a dramatic uh, benefit in patients with moderate to severe ARDS. So I think it's uh, an intervention that in the absence of contraindication should be applied to similarly to moderate to severe COVID-associated uh, ARDS um, and hopefully would have the same uh, benefits. And I think, again, here's an, another important point to highlight that prone positioning is really not a rescue strategy to improve oxygenation in those with refractory hypoxemia. We think one of the main benefit um, of prone positioning is, is that it leads to more homogeneous distribution of ventilation, which leads to a reduction in ventilator-induced lung injury, and then that leads to a mortality benefit. So 
oxygenation, again, is not the key thing that we're trying to improve with prone positioning. It's really trying to protect another strategy to help protect the lung when the lung is severely injured. And from that perspective, obviously, early intervention would make sense, right? In terms, I mean, if you intubate somebody, they're very sick. I mean, they, they meet the criteria, uh, not waiting too, 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 too much time to start the prone position interventions. Agreed, exactly. Now, could you comment, Eddie, on the timing of the prone position itself? Clearly, obviously, we, we have learned that it, the trials, um, I think the recommendation really usually gives us the floor, so 12 hours or more. But I think that what we've seen uh, based on anecdote and reports from around the world is that some of these patients are left in the prone positioning maybe longer. Uh, and I think that we obviously don't know what the exact um, recipe should be, but uh, it does seem that COVID patients are being prone for longer turns and, and, for, and for more turns than non-COVID ARDS patients. Any comments on this? Yeah, I, I think um, that's probably true. I think in our ICU, we, we were attempting to prone patients closer to the Proceva study protocol, which is keeping them in the prone position if possible for 16 to 18 hours a day and then giving them a break on their backs if they would uh, tolerate that. I think, again, we just need to be cognizant that there are complications from prolonged proning, including facial edema, pressure sores, and ulcers in uh, sort of non-traditional areas, depending on how you're supporting. So shoulder girdle, hip girdle, um, facial edema and facial breakdown, um, these sorts of things. So, um, so if possible, you wanna try to get them out of the prone position if they would tolerate it. And again, I would say at least anecdotally, and, and hopefully more evidence on this is coming out soon, um, we definitely had many COVID patients in our ICU who were prone for uh, a prolonged period of time, more than a week, sort of receiving daily prone sessions. Recall that in the Proceva trial, the median number of proning sessions was about four and a half days or four and a half sessions. Um, so uh, we, we certainly in our ICU saw patients that uh, had more uh, than that uh, proning, um, and those were um, uh, concentrated in the ones who had the very severe COVID-associated ARDS. And for an individual turn, have you had experience with keeping people prone longer than 18 hours? Yeah, so we had some, you know, again, some we had some very severely ill um, COVID-associated ARDS patients who had good responses uh, to prone positioning who, you know, we'd flip them supine and they might last, you know, an hour or two before their gas exchange became um, uh, less manageable and we would just flip them back to the prone position. In that situation. So we definitely had some patients who uh, really tolerated little and some maybe not no uh, sort of turning to the supine position for a few days. Okay. What about uh, the use of neuromuscular blockers? And that's something that obviously uh, the initial French study suggested would be very beneficial for a short period of time in non-COVID severe ARDS. And then a follow-up study suggested that maybe not as, as effective. And I think that we're still trying to figure out what's the right patient. But my sense is that because of the proning, because of how sick they are, there's more patients with COVID who are uh, receiving neuromuscular blockers than our usual ARDS patients. Yeah, I think again, the, the data, at least in my center, I would say that's probably true. I would say almost all of our um, patients in the ICU who are receiving these kinds of therapies for severe COVID-related ARDS, like proning, uh, some that got onto ECMO, some that were in very high levels of mechanical ventilation were also deeply sedated and paralyzed. Um, again, you know, to reduce um, uh, oxygen demand, to facilitate um, uh, 
mechanical ventilation and prevent asynchrony. And also in some of these patients, when they were on lighter sedation um, and off paralysis, they seem to have a, a very high uh, respiratory drive. So uh, again, and worrying about the, the possibility of perpetuating lung injury, especially in these severe patients. So at least in our experience, I would agree with your statement that we definitely had a, a large proportion of our severe uh, COVID patients with ARDS uh, deeply sedated and paralyzed for longer than we usually would in other ARDS patients. Any, any comments on salvage therapy with inhaled vasodilators? We talked a little bit about nitric oxide earlier, but uh, obviously from our experience in ARDS, I mean, these might be utilized for rescue and refractory hypoxemia, but studies have never shown that they actually improve mortality. But uh, and, any thoughts on this, Eddie, in, in terms of how you approach it? Yeah, so in our in our unit, um, in our ICU, which is uh, is an ECMO center as well, we've really gone away from using, I would say, inhaled nitric oxide in ARDS patients who develop uh, refractory hypoxemia, unless they uh, develop a specific indication for um, inhaled nitric oxide. For instance, if they have a very severe right heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, that we think might be, uh, you know, uh, an important cause or uh, at least contributing to their hypoxemia, in which case maybe a trial of inhaled nitric oxide would be useful. But for the general sort of refractory hypoxemia, hypoxemia patient, we, we've really stopped using inhaled nitric oxide in these patients and would move quickly if they were failing the prone position to uh, to veno veno ECMO. Um, so, uh, but there have been quite a few COVID patients that we received that were uh, for one reason or another, not candidates, uh, for instance, for VV ECMO, in which, again, as a salvage therapy, when they became hypoxemic, we tried nitric oxide in. Uh, surprisingly, I would say quite a few of our patients who did receive it uh, had an improvement in their, uh, a dramatic improvement in their oxygenation. Uh, again, we, we, we just need to collect that data and look at it more systematically, but at least anecdotally, we did have quite a few COVID patients uh, have a, a pretty robust response from an oxygenation standpoint to the use of inhaled nitric oxide. Excellent. And I think we could we could probably dedicate a whole episode to ECMO, and I know this is one of your passions, um, but also I think that maybe just um, some comments recognizing that not all places uh, are ECMO centers uh, and that ECMO is a limited resource, and especially in places or in communities where there is a large burden of COVID patients, it might be impossible to provide ECMO to all the patients that we want to provide. But what are your general thoughts in terms of how you're approaching ECMO for COVID-19 induced ARDS? So we're, we're uh, yeah, we're, we approached it uh, uh, similarly to, uh, again, to non-COVID patients. Our starting point would be EOLIA entry criteria. So despite optimal mechanical ventilation, a trial of prone positioning, these patients are still um, either quite hypoxemic or have... Um, uh, respiratory acidosis and uh, hypercapnia as per the inclusion criteria from Eolia. Um, and we use the same kinds of considerations. So age less than 65 that our program uses for non-COVID patients, COVID ARDS patients, uh, you know, we evaluate their comorbidities, the presence of multi-organ failure, how long they've been ventilated for, um, how reversible we think the underlying uh, situation is. And of course, in COVID patients, we had some additional uh, considerations for comorbidities that uh, you know traditionally wouldn't exclude you for for ECMO consideration, but we understood in COVID led to a poor prognosis, things like obesity, hypertension, um, pre-existing cardiac disease. Um, so we considered those uh, factors as well. 
Um, and we, and we, as you uh, mentioned, try to be judicious about its use in the preparation for the potential surge in our jurisdiction. Um, but basically, again, just uh, use the same criteria we would for non-COVID ARDS patients, maybe with those few extra considerations for comorbidities that we recognized in COVID patients were, um, were important prognostic factors. Excellent. So I think that um, obviously we, we could also spend a lot of time talking about weaning of these patients, but I think that for, for respecting your time and also we'll have future episodes of the podcast that will focus on, on weaning aspects. But um, I do want to want to stop here with the ARDS discussion, Eddie. And one of the things that we traditionally do with Critical Matters is at the end, we ask our guests a couple of questions unrelated to the topic, just to tap into their, their wisdom and try to learn from them. Would that be okay? Yeah, that sounds great. I don't know about so the, wisdom, but I could give you some answers. <laughs> awesome. So the first question relates to books. And uh, are there any books uh, or book that have influenced you significantly or that you have gifted most often to others? Yeah, so I would say that in high school, I really uh, developed a passion for English literature. In fact, my one of my English teachers was one of my formative first mentors in high school. And the book that opened it up for me was uh, James Joyce's book called Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. James Joyce is my favorite author. And I've often tried to gift this book <laughs> to some of my friends and colleagues. It's a bit of a dense little uh, novel, but uh, extremely uh, rich with uh, philosophy and life outlook. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting because a lot of people would, would, would say that uh, reality is really found in fiction, right? I mean, and it's really the, the study of human nature. And uh, yeah, I mean, I can imagine that for some people, James Joyce in, in, in an era, era of Twitter might be a little bit of a stretch in terms of, of, of density and effort, but definitely worth worth the, the effort. And we'll definitely link this this one uh, to to the show notes. Perfect. The second the second question, uh, Eddie, relates to something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that many others don't believe, or at least act as they don't believe. Yeah, I think the thing that I try to instill in the residents, uh, the health staff and the team uh, about the practice of medicine and it's true in life is this idea is the golden rule, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you and, and to treat patients as you would want your family members or yourself to be treated. I think if we use that lens more often, we would be, uh, you know, we'd, we'd have a very good framework for how to treat these vulnerable uh, critically ill patients, their family members, their surrogates. Uh, I think if we treated them as we would want to be treated or we want our mother, father, brother, sister to be treated, I think that would uh, go a long way. And I think it's also a, a very uh, appropriate and fitting uh, thought for what's going on in many hospitals. I think that we obviously are concerned about our patients, but it seems that the, with COVID, there's more and more barriers between us and our patients as human beings the fact that their families are not there, the fact that we're all in PPE, the fact that a lot of these people, I mean, obviously I, I can't communicate as well, I think has potentiated this. And I think it's a great reminder uh, of how we would want our loved ones to be treated if they were in that situation. I, I, I agree. I think it's been, it's, it's obviously been challenging for everyone. And I think maybe recognize, taking a moment to recognize that um, it's been hard for healthcare workers, but it's been hard for families, hard for the patients, obviously, who have COVID and are sick. It's been hard on patients who even don't because of the effects on our economy and society. And so I think 
I think the more that we could sort of take a moment and reflect and then try to use, uh, 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 you know, some sympathy, kindness and empathy for the fact that everybody's having a hard time and then moving forward from there uh, would really help. And the last question, Eddie, relates to what would you want every intensivist uh, or advanced practitioners listening to us today uh, to know? Could be a quote or a fact or just a parting thought. Yeah, I think it's the growing idea that uh, less is more. I, I think especially in the ICU, that soberingly for all the things that we've tried to study and understand, uh, in the end, it seems that they typically interventions cause more harm than good and that less is more and the whole choosing wisely uh, movement is that we should choose uh, wisely. So that, uh, you know, as we've talked about in this podcast, which has been great, is that being at the bedside is important. Details matter in critical care. And so watching carefully and often just standing there and doing nothing rather than don't just stand there, do something, uh, will go a long way for our patients. So I think less is more is an important uh, mantra in the care of critically ill patients. And I think that's a great place to stop. I want to thank you, Eddie, for your time and being so generous with sharing your, your thoughts and your knowledge with us. We'll definitely link a lot of the articles that uh, you, we've mentioned throughout the, the, the conversation in our show notes. I, I hope that you're doing well in Toronto, that uh, it's hard to believe that you're still the reigning champions of the NBA, right? Uh, we are we are at the moment yes <laughs> it seems like that was like decades ago but i uh, yeah, hope things get, yeah. get back uh, uh, to where we want them to be and that we have a chance to, to interact in person again and i uh, hope to have you back on the podcast thank you very much yeah, i appreciate it thank you uh, please uh, stay safe everyone thank you for listening to critical matters a sound critical care podcast Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound Critical Care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.